The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss all the news and reaction to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to Washington. We analyze the new military aid package announced by the United States, and we look in detail at Russia's reaction to the Biden and Zelensky meeting. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 22nd of December, day 302. And today, to discuss the most recent events in Ukraine and around the world, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, our assistant comment editor Francis Dernley, and our Russia correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva. I started by asking Francis for the latest news from Washington. Well, thanks, David, and good afternoon, everyone. As you say, quite an extraordinary day yesterday. I watched it all from Telegraph Towers. It was the evening here, of course, but not in Washington, D.C. looked like a very cold day in Washington, but a beautiful one, clear blue skies. And we watched as Vladimir Zelensky was given a thunderous reception as he told a joint session of Congress that Ukraine is alive and kicking and would never surrender. He spoke for about 20 minutes, repeatedly interrupted by standing ovations, it has to be said, and he invoked the spirit of the Second World War and the American War of Independence. He said to senators and members of Congress that soldiers needed more weapons, including planes, and that US spending on Ukraine was not charity, but investment in global security and democracy. I think that's a deliberate attempt. Whilst I'm sure Zelensky really believes that, um, I think that's also an attempt attempt to appease some of the uh, more sceptical Republicans in Congress. And I'll come to that in a bit. At the end of his, his speech, and it was, I say, a very rousing one and one that's received a lot of applaudits this morning, he presented House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Vice President Kamala Harris with a Ukrainian battle flag signed by soldiers. That flag was from the frontline city of Bakhmut, which he'd obviously visited the day before heading to Washington. He also spoke in the speech about Russia's genocidal policy with Iranian drones and said that one terrorist has found another. Again, I think he's he knows that uh, Iran is 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 a country that many many people in America and particular politicians are concerned about, and so making that connection, I think, was again quite an astute one to do. He also went on and said, "It's just a matter of time when they will strike against your other allies if we do not stop them now. We must do it." And he went on and spoke about how. Even if there was no electricity, Ukrainians would celebrate Christmas and the light of our faith in ourselves will not be put out. All of us, he said, millions of Ukrainians wish the same. Victory, only victory. And 
as I say, he, he there's lots of things that came out of this in terms of more military spending promised by President Biden. But that's going to be something that Dom is going to cover in a bit. But before he does so, I just wanted to mention one other moment which happened before President Zelensky's speech to Congress, which was his meeting privately, first of all, and then with the press corps. Uh, with President Biden and they were sort of sat around a crackling fireplace. It's quite atmospheric, actually. And uh, there was a moving moment when uh, US President Joe Biden was presented with a medal from Zelensky. And it was a medal from a soldier in Bakhmut, which Zelensky had had given this award to and the soldier had then asked for that award to be passed on to a very brave president, i.e. Mr. Biden. And Mr. Biden seemed genuinely very moved by this. He said it was undeserved but much appreciated and said that he would contact the soldier in order to give him a command coin. And I just mentioned this because I think it was very striking seeing quite how friendly Zelensky and Biden were. They seemed very, very comfortable in each other's company, more so than I think many people expected. Now, perhaps we shouldn't have been surprised. After all, they have spoken a lot in recent months over the phone and uh, via other digital means. But nonetheless, um, I, I think it would, they seemed genuinely warm in each other's company. And President Biden was very keen to speak later on about how all important political relationships are personal. And he likes looking people in the eye. And certainly, I think it's important to emphasise that President Biden himself, I think, has moved a bit on Ukraine over the course of the war. He has committed more and more resources uh, from America to the Ukrainian cause as it's gone on. And I think we can read between the lines here that a large part of that is because of the close relationship that he has forged with Zelensky. But just to wrap up one other key pillar here, which we did talk about yesterday, that even though in many ways I think this is a triumphant visit for President Zelensky, the optics are... Very, very good for him in terms of being seen in the White House, being seen addressing Congress, really solidifying this idea of Western unity at this moment. There are deep challenges that remain for him and for Ukraine. There are those who argue that his going to Washington is a response to concerns about Western long-term commitment to the country, not least in Washington itself. So whilst there was, uh, I'd say, almost universal plaudits received by President Zelensky in the chamber yesterday, there are still quite prominent sceptical voices within the Republican Party. And uh, Kevin McCarthy, who's likely to become Speaker next month, has already warned that he will not give a blank check to Ukraine. There have been other prominent Republican senators like Warren Davidson, who said that he did not think that Zelensky should be speaking from the House floor. He said that, and I'll quote directly, we should be focused on trying to contain the war, not expand the war. And this kind of sends the message we're kind of okay with expanding the war. And I think we should be sending a different message. And then he followed up with a quip about Zelensky's more casual looking olive green military garb that, of course, has become famous now, which he was wearing again yesterday. He's dressed more for the auditorium, so he should be talking to us down there. So, as you say, I think you can read quite a lot into those remarks. You don't need me to expand upon them. But as I say, I want to end by just saying that whilst there are those voices in the Republican Party, there's far more, I'd say, universal support generally within America and within the political class there. And indeed, there have been numerous Republican supporters this morning who've talked about the overwhelming support in the chamber that President continues to have. And indeed, Michael McCall from Texas has said that he actually hopes 
that, that there would be even more of an aggressive focus from the US on military assistance to Ukraine. Now, as I say, that's, I think, very important in terms of the audience President Zelensky was making there. But I'll talk in a little bit, if you'll, if you'll let me, about uh, the con- another interesting remark that President Biden made in relation to European allies. But I'll take a pause there. Yes, absolutely. There was some very interesting and quite revealing comments made by President Biden to do with that. So we'll come back to that. Uh, Dom Nichols, can I come to you um, now? Um, As Vladimir Zelensky arrived in Washington, uh, the United States has has announced another $1.85 billion in military aid. This is including a much sought after Patriot Air Defence system. Can you talk us through this aid and also talk us through Patriot Air Defence? What what is it and how does it work? How how might it be employed in, in Ukraine? Sure. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Um, so, yeah, so $1.85 billion for military aid. And I think there was a $45 billion uh, uh, cash for the for economic aid separate to that. But the $1.85 billion, the headline news there was the Patriot missile system that we've we talked about a little bit last week when when it uh, when well it was stronger than rumours the the news broke basically that the, the Patriot battery was going to be was going to be sent. So we had a look at it there. Um, it's a very, very capable air defence um, system. Now, if it's the, it might not be the very latest model. The, the Patriot first came out for the sort of 1991 Gulf War, um, and it's been upgraded since then. So it might not be the absolute latest system that is that's being gifted. But hey, it's still going to be a very very capable air defence system. And the special source with with Patriot is that it it's got an anti ballistic missile capability. So up to now, all Ukraine has had to um to to fire against the ballistic missiles that have been coming in from well mostly fired from submarines and the surface fleet in the black sea but some air launched uh from the tubelevs and the biggest big um the bears uh, that have been flying out of russian mainland and belarus um all they've all they've had is is one small system i think it's the s300 but i think I, i'm going to get that wrong um but and and then and only then in in a very crude form. So Patriot is a massive step up, going against the going against the, the anti ballistic missiles. So so these missiles will not be used against against the drones, the the Shahid one three six, the Iranian drones that we've seen so much about uh, attacking Ukraine's infrastructure. These are specifically designed to to go against the the much bigger, the longer range, the more powerful uh, ballistic missiles that that Russia's been fielding. So for one point eight five billion, I mean that is that is a big chunk of change. But I mean Patriots don't come don't come cheap. I've been trying to work out what this would be because a, a Patriot system which includes the launcher, the a, a separate radar um, element to it, and a separate sort of command, uh, the the central command control bit, the headquarters, the the, the brains of the outfit, all slightly separate, all can be geographically dispersed, so they're, they're not all going to get wiped out if one part of it is is hit. Um, but for each system, you get 16 missiles that cost nearly $4 million uh, a piece anyway. So a big chunk of, of a Patriot battery price tag is the is the missiles that go with it. So the, the system, we think, costs around about $400, $500 million-ish, and the remainder... Uh, of the circa one billion or certainly high triple figure hundreds of million dollars figure for a system other uh, other missiles so for one point eight five billion I reckon you 've probably only got one battery there um, of uh, eight eight launchers each with sixteen missiles uh, there might be some of the extra money might have been taken up with additional missiles or what was also announced yesterday it didn't didn 't get much coverage because the patriot as the um 
uh, was the big ticket item, but was also also mentioned yesterday that uh, some JDAM kits. Now, JDAM stands for Joint Direct Attack Munition or Joint Direct Air Munition. I think it's attack, actually, Joint Direct Attack Munition, which is basically the um, the precision-guided elements that turns a dumb bomb into a smart bomb. So a dumb bomb, literally just gravity-fed. We'll remember these from the Second World War. They're still in still in use today because they're not they're not very expensive and there's still a load a load around and they're and they're quite um, quite easy to produce. Um, but in order to turn them into a smart smart weapon, you basically have to stick some sort of seeker head on the front and then some sort of guidance uh, panel on the back. So in Gulf One, back to 1991, they had what was called bang bang. Uh, control so that the 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 fins on these missiles were were only in two positions so it was pretty clunky in terms of how these things could be guided since then they've now been upgraded you've got what's called proportionate control so it's much a much smoother application uh, across the flying surfaces of this kit that that turns a dumb bomb into a smart bomb so and obviously what you get there with, with once you have a smart munition is it's much more uh, much more accurate and therefore you know be, have a much better effect on on the battlefield so that was in there as well that might take up the rest of the 1.85 billion if you if you account for at least a billion's worth for the patriot but you know the the big the big item to to bear in mind there was the patriot this is they've been asking for it for a very long time um it was uh, it's it's a defensive weapon clearly you're, you're aiming to to stop people attacking you so it's not it doesn't quite get into that bracket of offensive with all the all the connotations and the discussions we've had about is it escalatory is it provocative etc etc um and we seem to have crossed that Rubicon anyway, but this system is very much a defensive system. The the, the suggestion that the the US have been very reluctant to um, to gift this to Ukraine up to now because it is such a sensitive piece of equipment. It's a signature piece of equipment that if it were to fall into Russian hands, that would be um, problematic for for the US and and Lockheed Martin, the the the, the producers. I, as I've said before, once you gift. Uh, munition, or you put any munitions out onto the battlefield, you have to assume that it's going to fall into the hands of your enemy because positions get overrun, um, logistic depots are attacked, etc., etc., etc. So you have to assume that some of your stuff is going to end up in the in the enemy's hands, and therefore I think that was one of the reasons why I don't think this is probably going to be the the most up to date version of Patriot, and I think that accounts for some of the delay in uh, in the US gifting it. Um, uh, in the first place but you know a very capable system it's good to see it finally going if that unlocks other systems such as the big uh, strategic or um uh, i-star platforms so the information surveillance target acquisition reconnaissance the big drones basically that can stay up for for many multiples of hours at a time uh, then that's good like gray eagle i'm thinking of here that that's that's very good if it then leads to as president Zelensky mentioned in his ha- in his um speech to the house yesterday planes and tanks then, then that also is is to the good. So yeah, it was a. Um, I think yeah, one point eight five billion is a lot is a lot of money. I don't think it accounts for a huge amount of different capabilities. But what it does do is it, it's very significant in the capability that it does account for. And Dom, just very quickly from your reading of this, do you think it will be enough uh, to do what the Ukrainians want it to do, or will they need more to cover? As we've discussed before, very very large country, very difficult to defend on a broad front. Um, would they need more to really be able to give themselves that that broad coverage of defence? Well, I mean, the vast majority of attacks against Ukraine now seem to be the less sophisticated drones, like the Shahid one three six, or like other um, air launched cruise missiles. Now they can be destroyed by weapon systems that don't cost 
3.3 million dollars for each missile i mean you just you're going to price yourself out of the war if you keep trying to do that so some of the systems some of the much older systems like the german gepard the the self-propelled to tracked vehicle twin 35 mil cannons that just this just fire a load of rounds into the air to knock out these cruise missiles and, and the drones and what have you i mean they are they are much better placed um, to to attacking the the majority of the missiles that are being fired at, or the majority of the munitions that are being fired at Ukraine. So yeah, these Patriots are, are terrific. They, as I say, primarily in that anti ballistic missile role. Um, so yes, some some more would would be great because a lot of these things are being fired. The Iskander missiles are being fired at uh, at, at Ukraine. Um, so, but I don't think I don't think we should. Uh, and I don't think Ukraine will be asking for many, many, many more batteries of this thing simply because they just they just won't get them. I don't think. I don't think the US would give them the too expensive. Um, I just don't think they would they would do that. But also, I think they'd be quite cute, quite clever. The Ukrainians in in our, in in you know you back your winners. Okay, you pick the fights that you want to you want to really go for. So I don't think they're going to be keep pushing this line. They might they might try and get a, a second a second battery. Um, but they can't cover the entire front with these things, and nor would they wish to to try and push that argument. I think because they'll they'll rapidly run into um, a bit of uh, a bit of pushback from the US. So I think they they've they've pushed this for a long time. They've got their got their win. They've got their success. I think they'll now move move to elsewhere. Whilst at the same time saying the need for air defence of perhaps a l- lower sophistication is still very much required. Thank you very much, uh, Dom. Well, we've we've talked a lot about uh, what Zelensky said, and we've just discussed. Uh, some of the kit that uh, the Ukrainian military is going to receive from the US. And Natalia Vasilyeva, can I bring you in here? It'd be very good to hear a little bit about uh, the Russian reaction to all of this. There's, there's several aspects to this I think would be interesting to hear about. F- firstly, how has this been reported in, in Russian media? What have, what have people been saying? Hi, David, and hi, everyone. Um, it was actually quite extraordinary uh, that when I woke up this morning and I uh, went on my usual sweep of uh, Russian media, I actually had a bit of trouble finding anything on uh, Zelensky's visit, which, of course, made headlines and front pages across the world. So the, it looked like the strategy of the Kremlin so far has been to ignore it or, or try, if, if, if they were reporting it, try to push it um, away from front pages and like further down on the main page of uh, the websites. Um, quite predictably, Kremlin-controlled media uh, have tried to make fun of it, have tried to uh, portray Zelensky as an American puppet. And for um, many of Russian propagandists, including Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zaharova, it was the perfect moment to say, you know, I told you so. We've been saying for all of those years that Zelensky is just a tool in the hands of Washington. And now he is uh, traveling to the U.S. to receive his instructions on how to behave. Um, uh, it's also quite, I would also say that um, uh, Russian media have uh, been making a big deal of um, um, of the fact that uh, the uh, a lot of um, Republicans, members of Congress, um, have not been quite as enthusiastic about Zelensky's visit as you might expect. And a lot of Russian media have latched on uh, Donald Trump, Jim Trump, Trump Jr.'s comment um, in his tweet in particular, in which he called Zelensky a, um, a welf- welfare um, queen. Um other than that, um, it's you know it was quite interesting to 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 watch Russian pundits 
play down the um, or uh, completely ignore the hero's welcome that Zelensky received in Congress and instead focusing on the fact that uh, Zelensky was looking for um, more aid. He was looking for tanks. He was looking for jets and he immediately and he didn't get uh, immediate promises of that. Thanks, Natalia. And just turning to um, some of the other developments in Russia in the last few days, uh, Vladimir Putin has made some announcements about Russian military spending and about the Russian army. He's had a big televised meeting with uh, the, sort of the top brass on, on Wednesday. Can you tell us what, uh, what was discussed and what we've learned about the, 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 the Russian high command's plan for the near future? Sure. Um, I think it's also important to put it in context. And uh, the con- context in Russia right now is that um, we are now, it's almost Christmas time, it's the end of December. And by now, Putin would typically have given his annual press conference, he would given his uh, uh, state of the uh, state of nation address, and he hasn't done either of those things. Uh, his uh, office um, has confirmed that he's not doing either of the things this year, which is highly unusual. Um, at the same time, he visited um, uh, a big annual meeting of uh, uh, um, of the Russian Defense Ministry, and apparently that um, that meeting was important enough for him to make. While he completely ignored the scheduled press conferences or the address to Russian Parliament, and at that meeting, he uh, he tried not to dwell on um, Russia's. Um, shall I say, failures in Ukraine on, on the failure to capture territory, to hold on to the territories they captured. Um, and uh, he did uh, mention uh, problems that arose with Russia's partial mobilization, which shed the light on um, uh, gaping uh, lack of supplies of the most basic kits for um, for mobilized men. At the same time, he uh, he didn't give any figures. He just told the Russian uh, top Russia's, Russia's top military officials that, um, quote, everything uh, you are asking for, the government is ready to provide. Um, it's quite an important comment. We know that Russia's military spend, spending has been on, on, on a rise, but um, that, that comment obviously um, leaves no room for interpretation. He, he just made it clear that um, uh, Russia's um, that a war in the a victory in the war of Ukraine is the main thing for him for his survival and for the Kremlin regime and uh, it will be no no expenses spared essentially. Um, he also um, um, he also approved several proposals that his defense minister made and as we can see those proposals are clearly clearly um, stem from the fact that Russia is facing a uh, manning crisis in Ukraine among those pro- proposals is an increase in the number of um, army personnel to 1.5 million troops um, uh, nominally uh, there are supposed to be 1 million troops in Russia um, uh, that's I'm 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 saying I'm saying nominally because um, analysts and people who have been analyzing um, the um, Russian military sector for uh, years um, used to say that before the war started, Russia has just under one million troops. That Russia has had trouble uh, recruiting more than that. Uh, so now it looks like we're gonna have uh, we're gonna somehow end up with half a million more troops. Um, uh, Minister Shoigu also proposed widening the age rate for age rate for mandatory military service. 
which would see men aged 21 to 30 um, serving in the army instead of 18 to 27. And he also announced the um, an expected increase in the number of contract soldiers. Now, military analysts have been quite skeptical about whether those goals are uh, realistic or how Russia is going to meet them at the same time that um, we saw that Russia has really struggled first to get volunteers to fight in Ukraine and second to uh, get conscripts or to, to mobilize men when the partial mobilization um, has been started. But Putin has signed on to those proposals and uh, it looks like they're going to try and go ahead with them um, as much as they can. Well, thank you very much uh, for that, Natalia, to give us the re- reaction inside Russia and just a sense of what the Russian high command are planning next. Francis, can I come back to you? There's one more thing I want to pick up on around uh, Zelensky's visit to Washington, because I just want you to talk a little bit about this phrase that Mr. Biden said. They understand it fully, but they're not looking to go to war with Russia. They're not looking for a third world war. I think that's quite interesting. Do you want to expand on that? Yes, it was a very interesting exchange, David. And I think, as I say, it's revealing as to the real state of the American anxiety at this critical moment. Uh, As you say, Biden did make those remarks. And it was part of a wider exchange, which I'll I'll read in full because, as I say, all of it was interesting. So both leaders were asked at the press conference why the US could not give Ukraine all capabilities so that it could, quote, liberate territories sooner rather than later. And then there was a long... long silence and Mr. Zelensky looked at Mr. Biden and said, I agree. And there was, you know, a bit of a, a chuckle in the room. And then Mr. Biden responded, you say, we d- why don't we just give Ukraine everything there is to give? There is an entire alliance that is critical to stay with Ukraine. The idea we would give Ukraine material that is fundamentally different than is already going there would have the prospect of breaking up NATO and breaking up the European Union and the rest of the world. He then said he'd spent several hundreds of hours face to face with European leaders making the case for continued support of Ukraine. They understand it fully. This is Biden. But they're not looking to go to war with Russia. They're not looking for a third world war. So that's the full exchange. And I think, as I say, you don't need to read too much between the lines to see what he's saying there, which is that the Americans, according to their telling, at least of what's happened, are absolutely committed to giving as much support for Ukraine as they can. But it is in Europe that there is more concern and anxiety. And I think that from what we've been reading and analysing on this podcast for several weeks now, it would appear that the biggest concern is around France and Germany's perspective on this. But there are other countries, too, it has to be said, that are... um, um, that are also having a more perhaps sceptical and, and perspective on this because they genuinely fear that if certain weapons are not ge- are given to Russia, then this will lead to an escalation and uh, the potential for countries to be dragged into some larger European conflict. Now, I think my response to that would be, well, we've already seen how... Uh, over the course of the war, there have been many, many red lines for Putin, whether it giving defence weapons, whether it be giving certain types of tanks, etc., that that have not, as it's proven, have been red lines for him. Now, I'm not saying that he doesn't have a red line, but I'm saying that I think there has been perhaps undue caution on the part of certain European partners with regard to what Putin's red lines are. And and I think you could just get a sense of the frustration from President Biden there that not that there there is more resistance within Europe than he deems necessary.
Natalia Vasileva, can I come to you? There's a couple of interesting stories I think we should talk about that you've been looking at. Uh, the first is this um, quite, quite well, it's quite a story, really, about a Russian official who's been injured in an attack on his birthday party outside Donetsk. Uh, can you talk to us about this? Um, yes, yeah, sure. That story is quite extraordinary um, in so many ways. First, we're talking about an um, ultra-nationalist politis- politician who has been uh, one of those few people, really, in the Kremlin who has openly called for a war in Ukraine for all those years, who publicly once said he wished he would give away all his jobs, titles, and just end up in the trenches of Slovyansk and Eastern Ukraine. Um, he's also someone who was um, the head of Russia's space agency. Um, and as luck would have it he was having his birthday yesterday and apparently he decided to throw a birthday party at a restaurant um just a dozen kilometers away from the front line and uh this is where um russian artillery shelled um that little restaurant and apparently caused the death of two people and um and an, an unspecified number of injured, including uh, Dmitry Rogozin, who was there having a birthday party. Um, uh, Dmitry Rogozin turned 39 yesterday. Um, he did not um, deny, nor did he confirm that he was having a party. In his Telegram channel, he said that he had, quote, a work meeting um, with other um, separatist officials. Um and uh, apparently he sustained light injuries. And according to some Russian media, uh, one of the injuries sustained he sustained were in the buttocks. Um, obviously, um, that story shows how precarious the situation is at the front. Also, it shows how careless some officials could be. Um, Rogozin has been known for posing for pictures on the front line and um, apparently, you can get carried away with that quite far. Um, and uh, despite the fact that Ragozin is a um, he's a former Kremlin official, he doesn't have uh, an official role right now, even though he's rumored to be in line for a senior position in the occupation government. Um, his um, his attack, to be honest, it didn't just um, um, attract uh, attract um, uh, lots of. Uh, sort of um, skepticism in Russia. It also, um, um, I'm I'm not even going to talk about like all the memes and jokes it produced online, but it's quite telling that um, even the staunchest Kremlin supporters, even those people who um, uh, would be supportive of Rogozin in other circumstances, uh, sounded genuinely outraged about the incident and not just about the attack, but about the fact that um, he took so uh, few precautions that he decided to party in evening time in a, in a place that um, uh, should be shut down for the night. And the fact that he was having a party just a dozen kilometers from the front line and no one in their right mind would do that because you're, in the, you're within the firing, firing range of um, Ukrainian artillery. So, yes, that's that's a one cautionary tale for those who would like to go to Ukrainian for photo ops. Thank you very much, Natalia. Just one, one more question for you. We talked about this the other day. It's a few days old, but I just wanted to hear your, your, your thoughts on it. Uh, this is the story of the Russian court that's ordered the seizure of a billion-dollar luxury resort belonging to um, Oleg Deripaska. Um, 
could you tell us a little bit about this story? And just, I'm, I'm curious to know, do you think that this shows a, 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 the cracks between the Kremlin and Putin and the oligarchs widening slightly? Or should, should we not necessarily read too much into it? What, what do you make of it? Well, it's, uh, I mean, uh, Oleg Deripaska is obviously one of rich, Russia's richest men. And as we know, um, a great number of Russian oligarchs have faced international sanctions. Um, some of them are... Um, um, living in London, have had their bank accounts frozen, um, uh, lost access to their um, to their bank accounts, to their property. Um, but at the end of the day, none of those people have openly uh, come out in support of Ukraine or have openly criticized Vladimir Putin for starting the war. Uh, Oleg Deripaska has been one of the few people who came out with very limited veiled criticism uh, in one of his social media posts a couple of months ago um, he urged for peace um, he called the war a tragedy but again he stopped short of uh, placing the blame on Vladimir Putin and uh, what we recently discovered is uh, a court ruling which apparently came out um, as early as in September, which uh, ordered to seize a billion dollar worth of uh, assets that he holds in a uh, in a Russian um, Black Sea um, resort. Uh, we're talking about a luxury resort and a uh, marina. And uh, it's quite interesting that the lawsuit was originally filed by a charitable foundation um, under the patronage of Vladimir Putin. And that case was later taken up by Russian prosecutors. So it was... Um, it was a Russian prosecutor who eventually went to court to sue Deripaska's company and uh, secured the seizure of um, his assets. Um, I would say it's too early to talk about a split within the Russian elites. Um, when we talk about Russian oligarchs, I think what's what this war um, show is how um, interconnected uh, Russian business has been. Um, uh, with with in, in with global markets, so um, a lot of those oligarchs, if they've had their personal assets frozen, um, parts of their businesses have not been affected by international sanctions, uh, because I guess a lot of people um, in, in 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 the world and in in Europe and the U.S. Um, uh, they realized how crippling uh, what a what a ripple effect those sanctions would have on the international markets. Um, and the same goes for the oligarchs' positions within Russia. Um, those people have um, tens of thousands, often hundreds of thousands empl- employees behind their backs. They own factories. They own entire sectors of the economy. So obviously going after those people um, is quite pro- problematic. Um, and um, at the, in, in a wartime like Russia faces right now, um, it definitely would be too risky for Putin to go out and, you know, jail those people overnight and nationalize of all those property. But I would say that this ruling is definitely a warning shot for um, Oleg Deripaska and the uh, Financial Times that originally ran the story. They quoted a an acquaintance of Deripaska saying that he has uh, he has received a word of warning from the Kremlin who asked him to quote calm down after his very um, mild, very veiled criticism. Of the war in Ukraine. 
Well, thank you very much, Natalia, for that. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. We'll definitely keep an eye on this on this story and see see if more happens. Can I just ask all of you for your final thoughts today? Uh, Thursday, the 22nd of, of December, we'll only have one more broadcast tomorrow um, uh, before Christmas. Uh, so, Francis, Dom and Natalia, can I ask, what, you, what will you be looking at, what will you be thinking about, and, and where do you think our listeners should be directing their attention over the next few days? Francis, why didn't you go first? Sure. Well, thanks, David. Uh, I I just wanted to, I think whenever we do an episode like today where we're focused on very high politics and we're less focused on the military side of things, I think it's just important to remember the scale of the battles that are still going on and that have already been fought. And indeed, the Associated Press has published an interesting piece today analysing satellite imagery from early March through to December of Mariupol. And obviously Mariupol is is occupied now, um, but they've particularly focused on a key cemetery there, noting sections where the earth has been disturbed. And essentially, they think there are as many as 10,300 new graves that have been built or have been constructed in that cemetery. And just as an addendum to this, I saw a photograph last week that was published showing hundreds of unidentified graves using wooden markers for local residents. They don't have names on, they just have numbers. And when you see a scene of that many unmarked graves, effectively, when people are are merely being recorded as figures painted on a slab of wood... It's very, very hard, I think, to to not have that image singed to your consciousness. And certainly I've been thinking about it this week. And this will be my last broadcast, I think, before we go over into the Christmas period, even though we will still be having episodes uh, from the team. Um, and I think that that will be the thing that sticks with me over this crestive period that for all of the the talk that we do often and it's vital vital stuff on politics on the economy and all of the things that i often focus on on this podcast first and foremost it's the human casualties that it's important i think that we remember thank you very much uh francis uh dom nichols yeah i just want to take us back to back moot briefly um that battle has been going on for months now uh, with very, very little gain, if any gain at all, from Russia. They've been smashing their heads against that wall for, for months now through Wagner and then through through others. And I just think it's really interesting. I don't think President Zelensky would have gone there two days ago as he as he did if it was, if I mean, the risk was high, but if the risk was stupidly high, I don't think he would have gone. Couple that with the fact that we've not seen much social media footage from Russia out of there, as we have done yeah, you know, up up to a couple of weeks ago, really, showing uh, which have been geolocated to some of the eastern and southern districts. We've not seen an awful lot there. So what I'm suggesting is that there's a huge amount of fighting going on and still and still to go on. But it it really doesn't look as if Russia's able to do anything there. And and if they if they culminate, so 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 can make no further forward advances, then given the symbology that they've started to attach through their actions, have started to attach to that city, that town, then I think for them not to take it will be a significant boost especially over the winter um so i think we should just keep an eye on that and and see we talk about ukraine might be able to keep up the offensive spirit and action over the the hard winter months well this might be it we might be watching it impact mood and if they get a victory there then that really could could be very very significant for for russia so we so we do need to keep an eye on that i'll just say actually that i'm going to be working over um christmas eve christmas day i'll be i'll be in the office so i know we're not got, we haven't got the full the full team to set up a space as normal but anybody who's who's um listening i'll i'll do my own space i'll set it up out of my 
my account. So I'll I'll bung that out on on Twitter, and you'll you know, get the normal time, one o'clock GMT. Um, and we'll just uh, we'll just have a chat. It might only be me, so so you might get very bored and leave in a couple of minutes. But I just want to keep the um, yeah you know, keep keep the pressure going. You know, we're we're here. We've said we'll, we'll be here for as long as it takes, and and we're only a small team, so we can't do every single day. But you know, over Christmas, if we're in, we'll do it. So so keep an eye out for that, and hope to hope to chat to as many of you as we can over over Christmas. Well, thank you uh, very much, Dom. Uh, Natalia Vasileva, would you like the very final words? Sure. Um... Obviously, we saw that uh, Zelensky uh, was received as a hero in Washington and uh, the Ukrainian media are obviously celebrating the upcoming supplies of the Patreon missile. But we have obviously seen that um, the supplies of Western weapons have been uh, have been coming maybe one or two months later than Ukraine's needs. And now we're at the end of the first month of winter. It's getting really cold in Ukraine. And um, uh, Kiev has been asking for Patriot missiles for as long as I remember. And um, I don't want to say that it's too late, but obviously it's it's coming much later than Ukraine would have need to have it. And we're at the point when... Um, according to Ukraine's energy minister, there's not a single power station in Ukraine which hasn't been targeted, which hasn't been hit by Russian missiles. And um, Russia still has got a lot of missiles, even though we keep hearing all of that speculation that Russia is just about to run out of them. And um, just before I went on this podcast, a Ukrainian media outlet uh, quoted sources in uh, the Ukrainian intelligence community saying that they are expecting another uh, major Russian barrage of missiles either later today or tomorrow, um, for, um, targeting um, uh, power stations, targeting critical infrastructure. So this is definitely something to look out for. I mean, we may be looking at the battlefield. Um, obviously, that, that's really important. But we're talking about millions and millions of Ukrainians, Ukrainians who have not left the country or who came back to Ukraine after initially uh, fleeing the war in the first weeks of the invasion. And uh, um, this is something to watch out for. Even even though we keep saying that Russia's resources are outstretched, the damage that it can still um, incur on the ground is quite significant. And we're obviously talking about millions of people who are now in the middle of a very cold Ukrainian winter. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message and we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble.